Welcome to the Heartland Free Sermon Podcast. We're so happy to have you. If you're a first-time listener and you'd like to get to know more about us as a church, click the link in the podcast description. And if you'd like to fill out our online connection card, you can do that there as well. Thanks for joining us, and let's get into a fantastic message. Earlier this winter, I had five funerals over a period of a month and a half. Uh, Four of them were here at Heartland. First was Mordecai Hirschstein, age 72, our beloved Messianic Jew that we were so looking forward to getting better acquainted with, uh, suddenly took ill, died of COVID in less than a week. Then I had the great joy of officiating the funeral of a fellow pastor, Lauren Ingalls, Jonathan's dad, who succumbed to pancreatic cancer at age 82. And that was followed by the death of our our dear Audrey Elfering. Oh, how we loved Audrey. Died at 72 after a long, courageous battle with cancer. She fought so gallantly for almost a decade. That was followed by a memorial service for John Peterson, a longtime employee over here at Lakedale. Uh, Many of you knew John and Connie, their family, Uh, died at 65 after a 17-year battle with Lewy body dementia. Uh, Terrible, terrible disease. Finally, we buried one of our summer attenders, Ken Larson, age 83, suffered from declining health stemming from congestive heart failure. So let me ask you this question. How does grief affect you? For me, whenever I go through seasons when I'm surrounded by grief and the agony of suffering and the reality of death, I find myself asking, why? Why is there so much suffering? Now, I am a person who wants answers. Part of it is simply insatiable curiosity, that used to drive my mom crazy as I yanked on her apron and peppered her with questions all day long. But mostly it's this consuming need to make sense of things, to find some semblance of logic in the midst of madness. All of which makes it somewhat hollow to be told that we simply will not have the complete answer to the problem of evil on this side of eternity. That's what the Bible clearly says, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully. Today I want to touch on what we know in part. We don't know everything, but we do know some things. Genesis 3.15 is not the complete answer to why there is suffering and death, but it's part of the answer. So here is the truth that I want to focus on today. The fullness of grace, God's amazing love and favor for his people, the fullness of grace is seen only against the black backdrop of sin and suffering and death. Let me explain. The first 14 verses of Genesis 3 are an absolute 
tragedy in every way. God's pristine creation that we celebrated in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is dealt a crippling blow when we come to Genesis 3 with the sin of Adam and Eve. And a pall of death falls over the entire earth. And it looks as if all hope is gone. Have you been there? I got a glimpse of that as I walked with Audrey and talked with her that last time. As many of you well know, Audrey was a fighter. She simply would not entertain the thought of defeat. And I remember hearing her say, Pastor Denny, I have only days to live. And my heart cried out, say it ain't so, Audrey. I don't want to hear it. And it conjured up images of a beleaguered remnant of a mighty army raising the white flag of surrender. But then Audrey's next words were filled with hope. She described being consumed by a peace that she had never known before. And she said, she said, Pastor, is that normal? And I said, Audrey, oh, it is. I've seen it many times. As the reality of death becomes inevitable, God grants the follower of Christ a peace that passes all understanding. Sometimes the survivors, especially a spouse, will continue to wrestle with despair at a very deep level. But for the one dying, the troubles of this world just sort of fade into oblivion as the hope of the next world becomes more and more real. It's a beautiful thing. The basis for this hope is found right here in Genesis 3.15, our text for today. You see, there are three reasons we can have hope in the midst of suffering. The first is this, because grace, grace is greater. When the Lord punished the serpent for his role in bringing sin into the garden, the Lord said this <clears throat> to the serpent in verse 15. The Lord said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In the Hebrew, the word for crush is shuf, which means to beat, to pound, to inflict pain, to attack. Surprisingly, the word for strike is also shuf, which begs the questions, why then are they translated differently in English? And the answer is because of the con context. A substantial blow to the heel is not fatal. But a substantial blow to the head usually is. The entire message of the Bible from one end to the other is that God's grace, which would be revealed in the coming Messiah, is greater than anything our enemy can throw at us. Romans 5.20 puts it like this. 
where sin increased, grace increases all the more. I love how the Message Bible expresses this. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. All sin can do is threaten us with death, and that's the end of it. Grace, because God is putting everything together again through the Messiah, invites us into life, a life that goes on and on and on, world without end. When I visited Audrey at the end of her battle, it was agonizing to see this beautiful woman as cancer ravaged her body. And for me, it reminded me of chapters of my life I'd rather not revisit. I remember the last time I saw my dad, this big husky guy who could lift a 55-gallon barrel of oil and put it in the back of a pickup. And for months, cancer had ravaged his body, and now only a shell of the father I once knew. And that night, I went home, promptly vomited everything I'd eaten that day. Cancer stinks, doesn't it? It's revolting to us, turns our stomachs. No matter how strong you think you are, when you are in the presence of death, you cannot help but be reminded how fragile we all are. Have you felt the fury of Satan's attacks? He's a vicious foe, isn't he? And he knows how to strike us in our most vulnerable areas. Oh, may God help us to survive his attacks. When I was a young man, I was a long-distance runner. I ran Grandma's Marathon. For years, I ran six miles a day, six days a week. Most people would have said that I was a picture of health. I was enjoying my job as pastor. My wife had just given birth to our youngest of four daughters. Life was good. And then it wasn't. 1995, as my 37th birthday approached, I descended into a state of anxiety and depression, panic attacks, that humbled me like nothing I had ever experienced. Just couldn't get a grip on it. This unexplainable sense of hopelessness and despair. I couldn't exercise my way out of it. Couldn't pray my way out of it. I looked in vain for some way to rise above this dark cloud that had consumed me. There was no magic wand, no way to wave the cloud away. I had a full physical, found out I had a bad thyroid, got some help on thyroid medication. Later on, I got on some antidepressants. That helped some more. But the issue was much deeper. It always is. You see, the human body and mind and soul is mysteriously complex. Doesn't take much to throw us off balance. A few years ago, I listened to a fellow pastor named Tommy Nelson, and he shared his own battle with depression and anxiety, and, and I thought he must have read my mail. <laughs> 
And if you have any issues with this, you may wish to check out his book, which is called Walking on Water When You Feel Like Drowning. Finding Hope in Life's Darkest Moments. Tommy begins his book like this. He says, quote, football was my sole obsession from adolescence through college. I spent every waking moment reading about it, watching it, practicing and conditioning for my role as quarterback. It was a blessing to be slightly better than average because even though I learned that many people had more talent than me, I could nonetheless outwork them. Intensity became my coin of the realm, close quote. For me, I knew early on I was never going to be a star in sports. No ups. (laughs) But in my studies, I was slightly better than average. But only if I just worked my tail off. And you know what? That can easily turn into an unhealthy perfectionism in whatever you aspire to be or do. And you know, folks, Satan is a master at locating our point of vulnerability. He knows where to insert the knife, and he knows when to turn it. The good news for the Christian is that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Praise God. There is hope for those who turn to Jesus and cry out to him. Grace is greater. God's lavish love can overwhelm the clouds of darkness, praise his name. This brings us to the second reason we can have hope in the midst of suffering, and that is because Satan is defeated. He is a defeated foe. Genesis 3.15 says of the Messiah who is to come, he, the Messiah, will crush your Satan's head, and you, Satan, will strike his heel. The Hebrew word for head is rosh. It refers most often to the head of a human, sometimes to the head of an animal or a captain of an army. We all know that the head is the most vulnerable part of the human body. That's why we want motorcycle riders to wear helmets. That's why we want construction workers to wear hard hats. And it's also why the witnesses to President Kennedy's assassination knew instantly that it was fatal. Even though he wasn't pronounced dead for another half an hour, anyone who took one look at him knew it was over. But that is not the case with a wound to your heel. Even if they have to amputate, you can go on to live a long and meaningful and prosperous life. Does a wound to the heel sting? Yeah, it does. Is it a setback? Absolutely. It can derail your sports career. It it can steer your whole life in a different direction, but it's not fatal. You see, as we seek to understand 
the despair and the agony of our own suffering. We have to also wrestle with the agony, the sheer injustice of the suffering that Jesus himself went through. Could there have been an easier way to accomplish the same thing? Jesus himself was wrestling with that question in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you know what the answer is? The answer is no. No. It's because of Acts 17.3. We are told that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. The Greek word is a day. It means it is necessary. That's exactly what happened. He suffered. Whenever we go through seasons of suffering, let me be clear, I don't like it any more than you. We must keep in mind that nothing we endure on this earth will ever compare with what Jesus went through on the cross. Why can we confidently say that? Because Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, for a brief moment, even the Godhead itself was ripped asunder as the sins of mankind were placed on Jesus. You know that psychologists tell us the greatest stress known to mankind is the death of your spouse? A lot of studies done on this. When we marry, the two become one. And when we die, it's like half of you dies. And that hurts. The widow or widower feels like their very soul and spirit have been ripped apart. The Holmes-Ray test, stress te uh, scale, sets this stressor, death of a spouse, at 100 points. Interestingly, the next highest stressor is divorce at 73. In fact, I've had many people who have been divorced say to me that divorce is worse than death because you not only have to deal with losing your spouse, you have to deal with the rejection of that experience. Marital separation is third, 65. Ironically, a major personal illness or injury is only measured at 53. You see, the suffering that we endure on this earth is not easy. And why one suffers more than another, it's often without explanation. We are often as mystified as Job was when everything he held dear was taken from him, including his own health and even the respect and comfort of his friends. And yet Job was able to affirm, even though he slays me, I will hope in him. Maybe you've been there. Agonizing over a tragedy that seems to defy all explanation. Not till much later in Job's book do we see that, that what it is that kept Job going. Now you have to remember that Job had no access 
to the scriptures as we have today. Many Bible scholars believe that Job lived sometime after the Tower of Babel, but before Abraham, say 2100, 2200 B.C. He seemed to have some awareness of Adam, Job 31, 33. He seemed to have awareness of Noah's flood, Job 12, 15. But that's about it. It's all the scripture he knew. And yet in Job 19.25, he gives this amazing declaration of faith when he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and in the end, he will stand upon the earth. Then Job says this, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, that very skin, I will see God. Isn't that amazing? He says, I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. That's an amazing declaration. Have you ever been with someone near death? And their skin color begins to, to change. Lighter colored skin may look bluish in tint. Darker colored skin may appear even darker as the blood circulation begins to diminish. It's hard to see this, especially when it's someone that you dearly love. Further discoloration often occurs after death. But even before death, already the body it's beginning to decompose. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We can't fight it. It's our journey. We're all destined to take it. But friends, here's the good news. We can affirm with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives. And even after my body decomposes, that same body will be resurrected again. And in my flesh, with my own eyes, I will see the very face of God. Is that good news? It's true for Mordecai, Mordecai Herstein. It's true for Lauren Ingalls. It's true for Audrey Elfering. True for John Peterson. True for Ken Larson. And it's true for you if you're a follower of Christ. Now, our infernal enemy, Satan, is a defeated foe. His head was crushed. His fate was sealed at the cross. His eternal destiny is in the lake of fire that has already been prophesied in Revelation 20, verse 10. It says, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You know what, folks? Satan's going down. It's going down. And you, if you know Christ, you're going up. You're going up. Praise God. Now let's move to the third reason we can have hope in the midst of suffering. And that's because our triumph is certain. Our triumph 
is certain. Consider this. The events of Genesis 3 happened some 4,000 years before the birth and death and resurrection of the Messiah. 4,000 years before it would be fulfilled, the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 promised he, the Messiah, will crush Satan's head and Satan will strike the heel of the Messiah. Over those 4,000 years, 300 more prophecies were given about the details of this signature event that would be the pivot point of human history. Throughout Scripture, Satan is pictured as this roaring lion who wants to devour Christ. And this is exactly what we see happening from day one of the Messiah's life, even as Mary was cuddling her newborn child in Bethlehem, King Herod sent forth his death squad. And they massacred the babies, which was prophesied in Jeremiah 31.15. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. But the baby Jesus, meanwhile, was swooped away to Egypt, far from danger. And that too had been prophesied in Hosea 11.1. Out of Egypt I called my son. Once Jesus began teaching, he tried to talk to his disciples about his coming death, which had been prophesied in Isaiah 53.7. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah wrote those words 700 years before they happened. The fulfillment when Jesus stood before the governor, Pontius Pilate, Jesus didn't speak to him in his own defense. Amazing fulfillment. When the Romans arrested Jesus, one of his closest friends betrayed him. Do you realize that too was prophesied? Psalm 41.9. Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. For his act of betrayal, Judas was paid a measly 30 pieces of silver. Whether Satan realized it or not, that too was prophesied in Zechariah eleven twelve, some 500 years before it happened. And so they paid me 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah says. Every blow the Romans landed on Jesus was captured in the prophecies of Scripture. Isaiah 53 is a per picture-perfect description of the Via Dolorosa and the agony of crucifixion. Did it sting? Absolutely. Was it bitter? Unquestionably. Compounding the grief was the fact that Jesus knew all along the road that was ahead of him. He knew it. You can feel that sense of all-consuming dread in the Garden of Gethsemane as he sweat drops of blood. His anguish was real. 
you can bank on it. As Jesus took his last breath, he uttered, into thy hands I commit my spirit. That's exactly what he did. He had to place his trust in his heavenly father just like we do when we take our final breath. Can I trust that my heavenly father is gonna be there on the other side? Can I be confident as Jesus was that the prophecy of Psalm 1610 is true when it says, written down some 1,000 years before Christ, the psalmist says, you will not abandon me to the grave, but will, but nor will you let your Holy One see decay. The Bible says, Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Did Jesus have doubts? You bet he did. To be human is to doubt. That's why he sweat drops of blood. But in the end, Jesus was able to press forward. He placed his faith in the prophecy of Isaiah 25, 8, 700 years before Jesus. Isaiah 25, 8 says, death is swallowed up in victory. The sovereign Lord will wipe away our tears. Do you believe that? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I close with this. I love the true story of John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace. John Newton was raised in a Christian home, but he was orphaned at seven years old, and he was sent to live with a non-Christian relative. And in that home, Christianity was mocked. And John was mistreated, so he ran. He ran away to sea, and in time he joined the British Navy. And all of the time he rebelled with one purpose. This is what he said, that I might sin my fill. That's how he put it. Eventually, John Newton ended up in Africa working for a Portuguese slave trader. And one day the slave trader left on an expedition, left his African wife in charge, and she hated John Newton. Daily she would make him eat his food off the dusty floor like a dog. So what does John Newton do? He runs. Once again, he just takes off, makes for the coast, and he built this huge bonfire hoping to catch the attention of a British ship heading back home. And sure enough, he was rescued. John thought his luck was finally changing, but on the way back to England, temptation once again overtook him, and he broke into the ship's supply of rum and got drunk, and get this, fell out of the ship into the rolling seas. Amazingly, one of the ship's officers spied him and speared him with a harpoon, leaving a huge scar in his thigh. 
but he was alive. Days later, John Newton, as they were nearing the shores of Scotland, and he could feel home. What happens but a huge storm comes up and the ship begins to roll on its side and it begins to sink. And John Newton is sent below deck along with the slaves and they're working the pumps. And it was there, fearing death was imminent, that he finally cried out to God to save him. And soon he began to remember all of those Bible verses he learned as a little boy. And he started quoting them out loud. And there below the deck of a ship, caught in stormy seas, John Newton was born again. Praise God. John Newton went on to become one of the greatest preachers in the history of England. Today, people know him as the author of Amazing Grace. Are you clinging to Jesus like John Newton? in the storms of life. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Verse three is one of my favorites. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come, tis grace that has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Is that true of you?